18th, repercussions were swift in coming. Sheriff Clark arrested hundreds of campaigners, including a great many children. During the start of a Sunday, March 7th, protest walk from Selma to Montgomery, Clark's deputies and state troopers beat the 600 marchers after they had crossed the Alabama River, assaulting them with tear gas, whips, and clubs, and trampling them with horses until they retreated to town over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. With 17 hospitalized at Good Samaritan Hospital for fractured legs, arms, ribs, and heads, and another 40 treated for the effects of tear gas and minor wounds in the emergency room, some 200 troopers and posse men with riot guns, pistols, tear gas guns, and nightsticks later chased all the Negro residents of the Browns Chapel Methodist Church area into their apartments and houses. At the mass meeting of some 700 people who gathered in Browns Chapel, Hosea Williams, who, in the absence of Dr. King, had led the march alongside African-American civil rights leader John Lewis, quietly observed, I had fought in World War II, and I once was captured by the German army, and I want to tell you the Germans never were as inhuman as the state troopers of Alabama. Played out on national television, the piercing cries of terror and the visible brutality of gas-masked troopers riveted the American public. Much of the nation watched news reports of the second, more multiracial march led by Dr. King two days later. Protected by federal marshals, but barred by an injunction from moving on past the Pettus Bridge, the marchers stopped in front of a double line of Alabama troopers and sang the civil rights movement's leading freedom hymn. If you have never heard two thousand Negroes and whites sing, We Shall Overcome, hands joined and swaying in eight abreast rows on U.S. 80, just east of the Alabama River, Andrew Kopkind observed, there is little that can be said to convey the experience. Civil rights demonstrations are now so old that hardly anyone not actually participating feels the essential drama, but for about ten minutes, the incredibly complex, overplanned, overreported, and certainly unresolved Selma voting rights campaign was invested with a kind of profound passion that the world of pseudo-events rarely sees. No one could say after Tuesday's march whether a column would ever get through to Montgomery, fifty miles away, but the purpose of the whole campaign— to convince the federal government of the need for voting rights legislation, had already been accomplished. Six days later, President Johnson, who even a decade earlier would have been an unlikely crusader for civil rights, addressed a joint session of Congress to insist on a law to protect the right to vote for all citizens— if Reverend King's I Have a Dream speech at the August 28, 1963, March on Washington had produced the first rhetorical peak for the civil rights movement, this was the second. Speaking to most members of the Senate and House of Representatives in the House chamber, the Virginia and Mississippi delegations were absent, joined in their boycott by several other Southern representatives, Johnson astonished his audience by the extent of his warm embrace of the movement and its goals as he promised to 
Send Congress a law designed to eliminate illegal barriers to the right to vote. Comparing Selma to Lexington, Concord, and Appomattox, the President identified the black struggle as his and as the country's own. Their cause must be our cause, too, because it is not just Negroes, but really it is all of us who must overcome the crippling legacy of bigotry and injustice. Pausing, then raising his arms, Johnson proclaimed the anthem of the movement, And we shall overcome. Arguably, those four words represented the most remarkable transformation by any president in the extended history of race relations since Abraham Lincoln embraced abolition. In the early republic, the United States...